Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fintech Cafe, and I'm your host, Ambika Sharma. This is episode 46, and today's topic is donor advice funds. As someone who is committed to leaving most of my wealth to charity, today's topic is near and dear to my heart. So when I found a fintech company that is focused on building a technical solution and lowering barriers and making people more charitable, I knew I had to call and bring Daffy to the show. So I'm very grateful to the co-founder and CEO of Daffy, Adam Nash, for joining us today for this conversation. Reminder that the original conversation took place with a live audience on Clubhouse. So what you're listening to is a recorded session. In this episode, we covered the founding story of Daffy, the market landscape for donor advice funds, Daffy's product offerings and an upcoming surprise product launch, and of course, the bigger mission of how to make people more charitable. So with that, let's kick it off with a round of introductions. My name is Ambika Sharma, and I am a product manager. I have been involved in the fintech space for about a decade and have worked in the US, Europe, and Latin America. I'll pass the baton next to my co-host for her introduction. Thank you, Ambika, co-host with Ambika at Fintech Cafe. Uh, Thank you all for joining and thank you, Adam, uh, for joining us this evening. Adam, you are the CEO and co-founder at Daffy, as Ambika mentioned. You serve as executives at various firms, an angel investor, advisor, currently on the board of directors for Acorns, one of the fastest growing financial wellness system and shift technologies. You've also been at Wealthfront, and I could spend a little time just talking about some of that, but why don't you share, Adam, in your words, something about yourself? I know Amika and I have been looking at your eponymous blog, which I think you use a framework of psychohistory, but would love to just hear your story of getting to where you are today. Oh, thank you both, and, and happy to be here. I think it's great that you guys do this. Yeah, no, as you say, I'm the co-founder and CEO of, of Daffy. Uh, Daffy stands for the uh, Donor Advised Fund for You. It's a brand new service we launched just a few months ago with the mission to help people become more generous more often. And I'm happy to talk about that. Um, not sure what to say about my history and background. As you mentioned, one of the liabilities of, of having been the VP of core product at LinkedIn through the IPO is that one of my responsibilities was to test every single new feature on the LinkedIn profile for a while. And as a result, my LinkedIn profile is probably too long for anyone reasonable to read. But I mean, my background is actually fairly normal for Silicon Valley. I, you know, I went to school for, as a software engineer. I went to Stanford and did a bachelor's and master's in computer science with a focus on human-computer interaction, which now is just obvious. Everyone's very passionate about design and user focus. But Believe it or not, the 90s was still a relatively new idea that had come out of the 80s. I I started my career at Apple. Actually, I thought I was was interviewing at Next, believe it or not, with Craig Federighi, who was my first boss. And then all of a sudden, I got this funny message that we were going to have to put all interviews on hold. And of course, it turned out that Apple acquired Next. And so I ended up working at Apple for just over about a year and, and change on Rhapsody, which eventually became Mac OS X. After that, I, you know, I've worked at a number of startups. I worked at a startup in the 90s that went public in 99, which was a fun time. I went back to business school, did a tour of duty in venture capital, early stage, learned what the world looked like from that side, but was really passionate about building. And so after that, went to eBay, was there for four years, LinkedIn for about four years. You may be noticing a pattern. Did a quick tour at Greylock as an EIR. 
That's how I met Andy Ratcliffe and ended up at Wealthfront and was the CEO there for four years. Another tour of duty as an EIR, spent some time helping out Dropbox for a couple of years, and now uh, I've started Daffy. I mean, I've done a number of things along the way. I've been an angel investor for the last 10 years, and so I've invested in over 100 companies. And uh, you know, it's exciting. I think fintech is a wonderful place to be. 10 years ago, it was very controversial. There were very few investors who wanted to invest in anything around financial services. FinTech wasn't even really a word or a name that people used commonly back in 2012. And so it's so fantastic to be in a market right now where we could build a, a product or a service like Daffy in such a short amount of time. It would have taken ages to do before this whole boom. So very excited to, to have the opportunity. Thank you, Adam. I know uh, we'll probably hit on some of your blog items specifically because it sounds like you were a bit of a early start on some of the common terms used today, fintech, uh, product management, but we'll come back to that. So Daffy, let's talk about Daffy. And for those who have joined us, Daffy is uh, about making giving a habit. It's a new modern platform. It's a community for charitable giving built around the commitment to give regularly, not just the amount you give. So Adam, you started Daffy during the pandemic. How did the idea uh, for Daffy really come about? Well, you know, all, all founder journeys are different. I think Steve Jobs gave that famous speech at Stanford in 2005 about connecting the dots of your life. So looking backwards, it feels like a lot of things came together to, to become what we now know as Daffy. But the truth is, you know, it was the summer, maybe the spring summer of 2020. Um, and I was thinking quite a bit about different problems around finance. And obviously with the pandemic, I think a lot of our minds turn to in technology of how we could help, right? You know, I mean, I think the pandemic, pandemic was a very difficult time for most people, but it was also uneven, depending on what industry you were in, what job you were in, whether you were in the stock market or, you know, in crypto, you know, financially for some people it was devastating and, and for others it was actually, you know, strangely positive, right? The, the fact that the stock market and crypto markets went up so much was, was a lot. And so in thinking about this issue, I was, I was thinking about giving. And it turns out my kids go to this school. It's a wonderful school. And they have this nice tradition where every Friday they bring in spare change and they put it in a little piggy bank. And every quarter, the kids vote on where to give the money, what local nonprofit to give to. And it's such a wonderful way to teach kids how to give and, and making it a habit. And it, it struck me that we, we teach our children to give, right? You can do a search on Amazon right now and look at piggy banks. I, I, I have four children, so I've, I've done this more than once. But it, you know, we teach our children to give. All these piggy banks have a little compartment for the money you can spend, the money you can save for a rainy day, and then, of course, the money that you should, you should give to those less fortunate than yourself. And I was just struck that we teach our kids to do this, but as adults, we, we mostly don't do it right? Our, our giving tends to be transactional. People ask us, there's the campaigns. And it, you know, I, it really bothered me a little bit. And as someone who loves personal finance and, and loves the behavioral, I had to ask myself the question, does it have to be this way? Now, I, I had personally had a donor advised fund for over a decade, and I think it's a wonderful financial product. But I also knew it was a niche financial product that most people weren't familiar with. And so putting two, to, two together, you know, it, it begged the question, well, what if, what if we made it really easy for everyone 
to put something aside for those less fortunate than themselves. But what if it, we made giving as easy as we've made shopping and saving and investing, you know, in this incredible fintech boom? And that's really where Daffy the product came from. Um, and of course, Alejandro, my co-founder, I met Alejandro at LinkedIn years ago. He was one of my favorite engineers and I just, I'm, I'm just saying that because I don't want to offend anyone by saying that he was my favorite engineer, but he's one of my favorite engineers to work with because he has such an incredible aptitude for design and quality and just helping. And I knew Alejandro had done some work with Donors Choose years ago and was inspired by their mission and what they've done. And so we talked about it and we decided to give it a go to, to, to start a company and, and try and do this crazy thing to get millions of people to, to give more. Fantastic. And so a little bit of context setting around giving and philanthropy in the U.S. Could you provide some statistics around that, Adam, to help us understand this better? How much do people give? And then also, as we know, during the pandemic time, I tend to volunteer at a NFP and they actually saw a huge spike, I think, during the pandemic. So I'm curious about some of those behavioral aspects of giving in the U.S., in your words. No, I, I think that's a great question. Giving is one of those areas where I think the news leads us to believe somehow that it's the playground of the wealthy, right? You know, newspaper stories are filled with what billionaires do with their money and, and giving. It would, it would lead you to believe somehow that only the wealthy give. And the research shows that, that that's not true at all. Actually, I mean, the United States is, is a very generous nation, as it turns out, when it comes to philanthropy for a lot of historical reasons. In 2020, I believe it was $471 billion given to charity. Over 300 million of that, sorry, I said million, over 300 billion of that was from individuals. And, and that's, just to put it in context, that's a very big number. You know, if you, if you measure it as GDP, 471 billion is about 2.3% of GDP. I mean, the entire agricultural sector is less than 1%, right? That's how big it is. And, um, but yet it, it doesn't see as much innovation as you'd expect, but you're absolutely correct. I think the pandemic affected things. If anything, I think it shifted people's ideas about giving. Um, a lot of people looked around them in their local communities and, and neighborhoods. There were incredible booms in local giving, incredible booms in, in giving to causes that people believe in. And this is building on trends that have been going on for, for more than a decade. More and more people want to see their money have some impact and not just money, their time, their effort. They, they've, they've, they increasingly believe that the only way we're going to see change in the world is through action. And philanthropy is one of the ways you can have impact and really benefit people and, and, and your community and, and potentially the world. And so uh, it's not surprising to me that this is such a big area, but the existing donor advised fund industry, of course, has been mostly focused on the wealthy which is why we built Daffy the way we did. Thanks for sharing that. And then Adam, more specifically, diving into the psyche around giving, I think you have talked about this both in Daffy and in your blog, there is a gap between the perceived giving uh, versus what they actually give. Could you just uh, dive a little deeper into the, the psychology behind giving? Yeah, and, and we've coined this the, uh, you know, the, uh, well, how would I describe this? Um, it's the generosity gap, right, is the, is the frame that we, we coined for it. 
giving is a very interesting thing. It's a very personal thing. You know, I'm a big believer in customer development and user research. And so before we ever wrote one line of code for, for Daffy, I spent a lot of time talking to people across the country about how they think about giving, as well as reviewing the research on the topic. And it's a very interesting thing because when you talk to people about giving, there isn't a lot of agreement on how much people should give. The good news is almost everyone seems to agree that people should give, right? You know, almost everyone has an anecdote, a story, a person in their life. It could have been a parent or a relative. It could have been a teacher, a priest, a rabbi, someone who made this impact on them when they were young that taught them that no matter what's going on in your life, you need to think about other people too, and good people give and help. But there was no agreement on how much. I, I had expected to go out there and find out that everyone thought there was a magic number, like 1%, 2%, you know, a biblical 10%, something standard, but there was no agreement. But what was fascinating in, in the research that I did, just anecdotally, was that when I asked people how much they felt people should give, they gave a number, it was all over the place, some percentages, some number. And they were consistent when I asked them how much did they think they should personally give. And in fact, a number of people thought they should give more. I talked to a lot of people who felt like they'd had good years, they were doing better than others, and that they should give back more. But then when I asked the question, well, how much did you actually give last year? There were a lot of, a lot of pregnant pauses, a lot of hesitation, a lot of guilt, frankly, from people who realized that even though they had an idea in their head of what a good person should give and how much they should give, they didn't meet their own standard. And when I dug into why, it was all for reasons that made sense, right? Like life is busy, right? People have work, people have personal lives, they have family. I mean, we had a pandemic, so everyone was plenty busy. And so what ended up happening is people just didn't get around to it. And, you know, that's a problem that we see a lot when it comes to money, right? That actually isn't just a problem with giving. It's a problem with everything that involves the money, right? Like how many people would save for retirement if they had to write a check to put money in the account independently, right? That's, that's not how you do it, right? You want to have money come out of each paycheck and go into a retirement account. You want it to be automated. And so sure enough, it turned out in the research, they validated this. And so we cite this research in this in this post that we put out about the generosity gap, it turns out the research indicates that if people just committed ahead of time to a goal around giving and automated it, that the estimate is that they would give 32% more. And that's actually a very kind way of putting it. What I found was that people tend to give much less than that what they want to give. And so what we're excited about doing with Daffy is, is just that simple idea of, of letting people set a goal letting them automate contributing to that goal, right? Putting money aside every week or every month. Pick the charities and causes you want to support. You can even automate the donations to them if you want to give money to a charity every month or every quarter or every year. And just automate it so that you never end up giving less than you mean to. And so that's the basic idea behind the Daffy product. But what we're hoping is that we can unlock even more generosity, right? You know, I know that that number sounded big, that over $300 billion a year is given by individuals. But think about it, 32% more, that could be an extra $100 billion a year. 
And so that that's kind of the goal that we're aiming for as a organization and, and what we're hoping that our membership will do over time. So Adam, is there a framework you recommend in terms of how to think about how much to give, given that you've done so much research on, you know, giving and the guilt that you described earlier that you found among your users? You know, the number one piece of advice I would give is not about a number or a framework. It's actually just to have a goal. I mean, the truth is I really like this idea from a behavioral finance perspective of setting a goal for giving just the way that you set a goal for saving and investing or, or for other financial goals you have in your life. It turns out the research indicates that just setting a goal will dramatically improve the amount that you give. And so my advice around giving is very much starting with that. And I wrote a personal post about this with my own giving over the last 10 years. It turned out once I set a goal for how much I wanted to give in a, in a year, not only did I tend to hit that goal and give more, but I, I tended to exceed that goal in years, you know, where I was doing better financially. And so I think in some ways this is like the, you know, the recommendation that you give for people for saving, right? You know, I teach a class in, in personal finance at Stanford. I've done it for five years. And so there's always this question of like, how much should I save for retirement or how much of my paycheck should I save? And, and my advice on that tends to be, it doesn't really matter as much where you start. It just matters that you do start, right? If you, if you want to give a few hundred dollars a year to charity, you want to give a few thousand dollars a year to charity, you want to give 1% of your salary, 5%, whatever it is, I think the most important thing is for people to just start and set the goal. And then it becomes so easy every year to ask the question of, can you give more? Should you give more? And, you know, my experience and my belief is that giving is such a positive thing for people that actually I think that natural momentum takes over. Right. I, I looked at my own giving, you know, now and, 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 and surely I, you know, like a lot of people in Silicon Valley, I've done well over the last couple of decades. But fundamentally, my own giving has seems to have only increased over the years. So, you know, my advice for people with a framework is to not get so hung up on a number but to just set one, whatever it is. And then if you really want to go the distance every year, ask yourself, can you do a little bit more? What more can you do? I think that will be a very positive framework that over the next five, 10, 20 years will not only lead people to give more, but to feel better about their own giving and what they're doing for others. Reminds me of the book I'm reading, Atomic Habits. It's about forming the habits, like taking small steps and then you pivot into scaling, I guess. I want to shift to Daffy in terms of the product that you've actually built. So your product is built on a modern donor advice fund. Why did you choose that? And also perhaps we should first ask you actually, what is a donor advice fund? If you could give a quick summary on that. Yeah, the, it's funny. Donor advice fund is not a new or novel thing. Like donor advice funds have been around for decades in the US and actually exist in, in quite a few countries around the world. The basic idea of, of giving money to a charity that will then allocate that money to another charity that you help recommend is a very old idea. The problem is most people haven't heard of it, right? We've heard of a 401k or an IRA for retirement. We've heard of a 529 plan for college. We just haven't heard that much about a donor advised fund. And it turns out there's a really good reason for that. It turns out that most of the industry around donor advised funds is really focused on the wealthy. 
And that's because the business model for donor advised funds, most of them, is to charge you a percentage of assets, right? It, you know, whether it might be, you know, 0.6% like Vanguard or 0.9% or even 1% like others. But as a result, these institutions really only focus on people who can put hundreds of thousands of dollars or more away for charity. It's just their business model, right? And so that's actually why we set up Daffy as a membership-based platform, because we really wanted a platform that was accessible and approachable and usable by anyone. But yeah, the donor advised fund piece is just because it's, it's the perfect financial account for putting money aside for charity, right? The advantage is when you put money into a donor advised fund, you immediately get the tax deduction for making a charitable donation, like in this year. Your money can be invested in a range of portfolios, right? So your money will grow over time. And then any time you want to give any legal charity in the US, it's just a few taps on the phone with Daffy and that money can go off and, and go to the charity that you support. So it's really a fantastic account. We just had to reimagine it, you know, as a mobile first application, reimagine it with modern technology, reimagine it with modern portfolios. But the core of it, the donor advised fund, um, has been around for a very long time. And Adam, why did you guys get organize yourself as a 501c3, which is technically a nonprofit according to the IRS? Oh, it's not just technically, it is a nonprofit. Yeah, it's, no, actually we had no choice. It, it turns out that one of the rules, regulatory rules for donor advised funds in the U.S. is they can only be offered by nonprofits. Oh, I see. Hence, uh, like so, uh, Fidelity Charitable Foundation. Got it. That's right. <laughs> Fidelity Charitable is a foundation. Schwab Charitable, Vanguard Charitable. These are all 501c3s. And so what you see in the industry is that every donor advised fund is partnered with a for-profit company that provides technology and, and financial services. So Fidelity Charitable partners obviously with Fidelity Investments, Schwab Charitable with Schwab, um, Vanguard Charitable with Vanguard, et cetera. The unique thing about Daffy, of course, is that Daffy Charitable Fund isn't partnered with a investment firm. That's why we don't charge for assets under management. It's partnered with a venture-backed technology company. Got it. And so, I have a donor advice fund. I started one last year with Fidelity, but when I was searching or I guess shopping for one, they all seem to have very high fund fees. So mine was less than half a million dollars. So my fund fees were higher, almost as high as 65 basis points. So is that, would you say, I'm not mostly looking at your website, your investment fees are much smaller. You have a monthly subscription fees. Is that, would you say, one of the key differentiating factors for Daffy versus the Fidelities or the Vanguards? You know, it's funny. We set that up on purpose because, you know, my being on the board of Acorns for the last five years, I've seen how a service can help millions of people when it's focused on people and, and not dollars. And it's been really phenomenal to watch Acorns grow to be such a huge success with a really simple platform that charges, you know, a dollar or three dollars or five dollars a month. But you're right. You're you're completely correct. The, the fees charged in the industry are ridiculously high <laughs> in some ways. I mean, I, you're very kind about the, you know, I don't have half a million dollars, but let, let's be honest, most of us do not have half a million dollars to put aside for charity. The idea that that's the entry level bar for getting a fee discount is unbelievable. And 60 basis points is a lot, right? You know, 60 basis points of 
any amount of money, it can be a lot of money. You know, with Daffy, we tried to make it approachable. So Daffy is free if you're starting out with a balance under $100. For most memberships, it's $3 a month. And if you want to make unlimited donations of stock or crypto, we have a higher end membership that's $20. You know, I, you know, I love, you know, all these firms. Fidelity, by the way, is the most popular and the largest donor advised fund in the U.S. today. It, you know, but I always have a soft spot for Vanguard. Vanguard is one of my favorite firms in the financial services industry. But even Vanguard charges 60 basis points up to $500,000. You know, a $100,000 donor advised fund at Vanguard, right? That's $600 a year right? You know, it doesn't have to be that way. And so we've tried to make Daffy approachable. Now, that being said, I don't think that's the only reason to pick Daffy. You know, obviously you get the modern technology. It turns out almost, I mean, Fidelity Charitable at least has an app in the app store. Most donor advised funds don't even have a native mobile application. And Fidelity, by the way, you can't even open an account <laughs> with their application. You have to open it online on the web, and then you can download the app to give. But, you know, we have a number of advantages. We support crypto native. Most donor advised funds do not. And so the, the fact that you can go to the app store, download an app, open the account, you can fund it. You can fund it with cash by linking your bank account. We use Plaid for that. You can, you know, donate stock. You can donate crypto. You can transfer money from an existing donor advised fund. You can then invest in nine different portfolios, right? So we have standard low cost portfolios of, of Vanguard ETFs. We have ESG portfolios who want to better align their investments with their values. And then, of course, we have native crypto portfolios for people who are bullish on Web3 and kind of the future of crypto. And so you can do all that from the service. And then, of course, we've tried to make it incredibly easy to give over one and a half million you know, nonprofits at your fingertips is really a fantastic thing when it's combined with a native mobile application that was built you know, with modern technology. I think there's a lot of good reasons to pick. And I think it depends. We're seeing a lot of people with existing donor advised funds come over, mainly for either the fees or for the crypto. A lot of fans of crypto these days. But, you know, the truth is we get a lot of people who like Daffy just because it's a better system for giving. I can't tell you how many people tell me stories about how they chase down donation receipts at the end of the year for their taxes. I mean, obviously, this is the week for taxes, right? If, by the way, if you have not gotten your taxes in, this is the week to do it. But, you know, everyone has a little bit of drama, a little bit of, of scarring about how they find those donation receipts and keep track of them or Gmail searches, et cetera. Great thing about Daffy is you have all your donation information in one place. You know, a simple, simple PDF you can get to any time. Give to your accountant, enter tax, whatever you need to do. Thank you. Sorry, he was speaking on mute. So the last thing in terms of crypto, are these portfolios that are crypto native, or can I also move, let's say, my Bitcoin holdings over to Daffy? Oh, great question. So we support crypto on both sides. So if you want to contribute uh, crypto to your donor advised fund, by the way, that's an amazingly advantageous thing to do. Coinbase Ventures is one of our investors. And so we use Coinbase Institutional for all of our custody. But you can contribute over 120 different coins to, to your fund. And what's great, of course, by that, sorry, I'm not a tax advisor. This is not tax advice, please be clear. But I'm sure if you do your own research, you'll, you'll find that, you know, one of the advantages, if you've held crypto for more than a year, when you donate crypto, you never have to pay capital gains taxes on the crypto, right? You get the full credit for the value of the crypto you donate. So I don't know what Bitcoin is at today or, or this hour, 
but let's assume that if it's around $40,000, if you had purchased Bitcoin a couple of years ago for $10,000, that $30,000 gain is not insignificant. And it's better for you and for the nonprofit if you can give more money. And so if you contribute that Bitcoin, you get to write off $40,000 as a charitable donation. That's a, a really big deal. On the other side, on the investment side, we do have three crypto portfolios. One is a diversified portfolio. We actually use Bitwise Investments combined with Vanguard ETFs to give you a diversified portfolio across stocks, bonds, and crypto, the top 10 cryptos. But if you're really a Bitcoin believer, right, we have a pure Bitcoin portfolio you can invest in. Or if you want more of a market-weighted split between Bitcoin and Ethereum, we offer that too. Awesome. Yeah, that's actually how I found Daffy because Fidelity didn't, they didn't accept my crypto holdings. And I, I was trying to figure out what's the best tax way to do, like if I could just transfer, as you said, there's no capital gains. And that's how I actually learned about Daffy. That's how I came across your company. Last question. And then I think we need to open up to the audience. You are an OG in product management. You have your own uh, blog and you've written a lot about product management. One of the blog posts that you had written were, was about obsessing over non-users and that growth comes from them. So now that you are on this new journey of starting a new, new company, especially where there isn't much awareness about the product, i.e. donor advice funds, how are you obsessing over the non-users as well as the core users? Oh, well, I mean, there's 24 hours in a day. There's at least a couple that I don't think about growth. So that's fine. <laughs> that's all good. Now, you're really flattering once again. And I, I think, you know, as, I think I get credit a little bit too much on the product side, mainly because I was probably one of the earlier bloggers about product. You know, I, I wouldn't be the product leader I am today without a number of fantastic people who taught me and, and that I learned from. But the truth is, when I started my career, no one was writing about this stuff. And product was a role that was not only relatively new, but it wasn't taught in schools. You had to learn it almost like a trade from people who had done it before. And so for me, writing was one of the ways of giving back to the community. And it's always fantastic and flattering to hear people who've read the pieces or had them impact their products and, and their careers. When it comes to growth though, that post that I wrote is actually a very funny one, getting back to having kids. But fundamentally, this idea of, of focusing on your non-users was something that really clicked for me Originally at eBay and then at LinkedIn in particular, when, I, when I w we built the first growth team, I know this sounds funny, but actually before Web 2.0, there really weren't growth teams, right? The Web 1.0 companies had user acquisitions, sometimes in marketing, sometimes separately. But this idea of product-driven growth, of designing growth into your product features was really something that came to its fore in, in Web 2.0. And so, of course, of course, Chamath ran growth at Facebook and then when we decided that we needed help with, with user acquisition, I helped form the growth team at, at LinkedIn. And so this is a long time ago. But one of the things I saw at LinkedIn was that, you know, we're all very data-driven, or if you're design-centric, you're very user-driven. But in both cases, you tend to focus on the numbers or the behavior of your existing users. There's very little data that comes into the system from people who are not already using your product. And sometimes that's okay, because hopefully your users are representative of more people out there, right? And that's how many of these products go. But when you're trying to figure out new products and services, or when you're trying to think about growth, there, there's just this unavoidable fact that growth only happens when some information, whether it's word of mouth or some piece of contact, 
goes from an existing user of your service or an existing member of your team to someone who's not a user. And so that blog post and that idea is something that I tell a lot of the startups in my portfolio and, and, and folks I give advice to is that not enough time is spent thinking about the people who are not on your platform and what experience they have. So like, let me give you an example. Um, when I was at LinkedIn, we acquired this wonderful little company called Cardmunch, which had this very innovative service that magically you could just take a photo of a business card, it would transcribe it for you and you'd have the contact, it was really nice. And so one day the team came to me and was very excited because they had their first real viral feature. What they were gonna do was that every time you scanned a business card, it was gonna send your business card to that person, kind of as a, as a thank you, right? Oh, it was great to meet you, we should keep in touch, but here's my information in case you need it. You know, kind of a nice touch. And so like all good teams, they had worked quickly, kind of got the MVP together. And you know, we, we had this meeting where they were said, you know, okay, we've got this, we're ready to launch, we're gonna roll it out, see how it does, and then iterate. And I was like, I had to ask them a couple of questions. You know, like first was, well, how many, how many of these emails are you gonna send? And so they looked at the number, they said, oh, well, we actually might send millions of these emails in the first few months. Everything, by the way, at LinkedIn was measured at that time in millions at least, if not billions. So that wasn't a huge number, but it was, it was a lot of human beings. And then the second thing, I asked, I asked them to look at the email and it was just a text email. It kind of looked, it didn't look terrible, terrible, but it was, it was not a great experience. And I told the team that they should think more about that experience because at the time the app only had I think maybe 50,000 users. And so I said, there's a million people out there whose only experience of CardMunch is gonna be this email. If this is a great email, then they're gonna think CardMunch might be great. And if this is a terrible email, they're gonna think CardMunch is terrible. And so for me, that was one of those seminal moments where, where two, it wasn't a bad thing, but not enough thought was being given to what the non-user experience was. I mean, I will tell you, when we started the growth team at LinkedIn, we did this audit and I had the team look at every feature at LinkedIn at the time. LinkedIn had been around at that point by about five years. And by the way, you know LinkedIn, right? It doesn't have a small number of features, right? It had so many features, that webpage was so busy. But I asked the team to look at what features LinkedIn had that non-users, non-members could see. Because LinkedIn was an authenticated site, right? You mainly use LinkedIn signed in as a user. And it turned out there were only six features at LinkedIn out of a thousand that actually non-members could see. And by the way, three of them, no one used. <laughs> so there were literally only three features, three pages, three experiences that non-members see. And not, co not coincidentally, all of LinkedIn's growth really came through those three features. And surprisingly, we did not spend a lot of those three features, right? Because we were so involved with our users. We were so involved with our customers. We were so involved with our members. We wanted to make that experience great. There was no obvious voice inside the company for people who were not already customers, who were not members. And so that's where that idea was born. And so when I tell people to think about non-members, it's just a recognition that the world is a big place. Most startups, even most established companies, I mean, there's some point you get to a point where you're so big, everyone's already on the platform pretty much. But this obsession with people who haven't yet discovered your product, the experience that first time user almost always starts with features and content that isn't your member driven content. It's, it's your guest content, right? It's, 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 and, and teams don't spend enough time on it in my experience.
So, I mean, at Daffy, we spend a lot of time thinking about this. We are so new. The benefit that we have, of course, is that at this point, um, within some rounding error, pretty much everyone is not a user yet of Daffy. <laughs> so it's a little easier for us to think about acquisition and growth because it's, you know, that's part of the whole journey from finding product market fit. But it's something that we think about a lot and we talk about a lot. Awesome. Well, maybe we can get you some users. So in the room <laughs> chat, your team, Chelsea specifically, she shared a promo code. So I share the promo code out with everyone who's on this call. If you go in the room chat, you'll be able to see it. And it's $25 for a charity of your choice if you download the app using that promo code. Manisha, did you have a last question or should we open up to the audience? Uh, let's open up. And if we're waiting, I can definitely go with mine. Okay, then. Thank you. So now we can, we invite you to come on stage and, you know, share your, ask your questions or share your thoughts. We already have Deidre. I see there are newcomers. So there are some party hats I see here, which means that you're a newcomer. This is how you can come on stage. There is an icon, like a hand in the bottom right. If you click on that, Munisha and I were moderators and we can bring you up on stage. If you like, you can also send us your question using the back channel and we will read the question on your behalf. But if you're coming on stage, please first introduce yourself and then ask your question. So Deidre, over to you. Thank you. Yes, my name is Deirdre. I'm actually um, a UX researcher. I've been looking at the, the questions on Daffy, just trying to look at it from a person that knows nothing about investing. Are, do you think in the future you're going to offer recommendations for what people, what funds people should put their money into for those who all they, the only investing experience they have is 401ks? Oh, that's, a, that's really interesting feedback. The short answer is uh, yes, we, we probably could do a better job at minimum with defaults and guiding people through that. I think with the initial version, we didn't want to put too heavy a hand on it because different people have very different sensibilities about how they want to see their money that's mm -hmm. allocated for charity invested. But I, I, I think that's a really good point. And we probably assume too much up front about people having a point of view about how they want their money invested. It's just my been my experience working at one of the 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 top five banks that people are interested in investing, but they're they're intimidated and and frightened. And I would think with a with a charity, they don't want to make a a decision that will actually cost money. Like the charity would receive less money because of their investing decision. It just seems like something that would freak out a novice. You know, it's interesting you say that. We've actually seen feedback in both directions. I'm not sure how to quantify it, to be honest. We're still too new. There are some people who really love this idea of putting money aside for charity, investing it for growth, even if that involves risk, because they have this idea that they'll have even more money to give, or they can give to even more organizations. And so there are some people who actually are really aggressive about it. And, and by the way, that's why there's some interest in crypto because there are some people who see a future for crypto where crypto is worth a lot more. And so they're excited that, hey, if I put this money aside for charity and put it in crypto, maybe in five years, I'll be able to give a lot to the mm -hmm. organizations I care about. And there are some people who think exactly the way you just mentioned, which is, listen, this money's for charity. It's too valuable. This is money that could help real people with real problems. 
I don't want to lose that money. Mm-hmm. What we tried to do in the interface is not only offer, you know, to simplify things, we kind of broke everything in threes, right? So you can pick a standard portfolio. We, we did try to call it a standard portfolio, an ESG portfolio or a crypto portfolio. And then, of course, within each one, we have kind of a conservative, moderate, and aggressive version. But I think you're right. I, I, my expectation is that over time, we will end up rolling out more portfolios and more guidance around. This is one of the great advantages, by the way, of being a modern fintech application, right? You know, it's relatively easy for us mm-hmm. to roll out new portfolios and new mixes of things. And so, you know, assuming if, if members really are interested in us doing more on the investment side, I know that there's a number of members of the team who are excited to do it. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, we have one question from the back channel. It's from Babhub. And he's saying, in addition to being a CEO, you're also a longtime angel investor and advisor to many startups. What advice do you usually give to the founders? You know, it's actually, it's very funny. Being an angel investor is, is, is humbling in some ways if you have the good fortune to back amazing founders, because usually what ends up happening is in the beginning, they ask your advice on a few things, but over time you end up learning more from them than, than I think you end up giving them, you know. Watching, like watching Figma today for me is just amazing knowing where that started. And I remember walking around Palo Alto with, with Dylan when he was just raising his first seed, seeing what Open Door has become or looking at Gusto. I mean, all these companies shift. I'm on the board of now as a public company. They're all amazing to me. For me in the beginning, I mean, it depends on what company type it is. A lot of my angel investment, as you can imagine, is in the areas that I have some experience in. So they tend to be either on the consumer side or marketplaces. I love fintech, so there's quite a bit of fintech investment. Fintech might be a good example where usually what I talk about with founders is one, being honest about what value their product really provides. You know, finance isn't just like any other type of application in my view. When you're dealing with people's money, First of all, that's an amazing amount of trust. And trust is something that you have to prioritize and take seriously from day one. And so one of the tests I actually have for founders that I invest in is I want, I, I want to get a good feeling that they, they're honest intellectually about the value that their product provides economically, right? Like what, what are you doing here that actually adds value? Because it's very easy to say things like you're democratizing something or that, you know, you are making it easy to do something, but that's kind of dodging the question, right? Are you really making people's lives better in some way? Are you really improving someone's financial situation? Because that begs the second question I talked to them about, which is always go to market. Who is this product really for? You know, age, demographic, education, you know, and, and it's, it's always interesting, and, and I, I always have productive conversations with them about that and what that implies about who their target market is and what that implies about their go-to-market and, and growth acquisition channels, etc. So those are usually the early conversations I have. I mean, a lot of founders do come to me for fundraising advice. One of the benefits of having experienced angel investors early on is that when it comes to raise the Series A or the Series B, etc., you have a network, you have references, but you also just have advice about how venture capitalists are going to see, how, what, what are investors going to look for in your company? What are they going to see? And so I do a lot of pitch deck reviews, et cetera. But I, I will tell you honestly, I, I, I feel proud of the advice I give. 
you know, founders, but I'm always very cautious. You know, the, one of the problems with people who position themselves as advisors or angel investors, et cetera, is we all just have a limited experience. I mean, I, you know, my career now is 20 plus years. And so maybe I have a little bit more experience than some, but, uh, but fundamentally each company and each product has its own lessons, but it really is unique in a number of ways. And it's very rare that startups get built exactly the same way as the generation before it. So I always like when I talk with finders, I explain to them what has worked before and different patterns and things they can look for. But the, I've had the good fortune that a lot of the founders I get to work with as an angel investor, they tend to take that advice and other advice, turn it into something new, and you just see amazing things when they execute well. It's been amazing to watch some of these startups grow and, and the products and services they build and the impact they have on real people. So anyway, I don't know if that answers the question, but that's, that's how I think about it. Awesome. Thank you. I think it did. We do have one on stage and then I think three or four in back channel. So Cassie, we'll give you the floor if you want to introduce yourself and ask your question. You'll have to come off mute. Okay, maybe not. I will come back to you, Cassie. Let me know when you're ready. I, I uh, was a little sad to see that those little, that little announcement cone was because they were new. I thought it was because they really liked my answer. So now <laughs> we, we yeah. can assume that's the case too, Adam. <laughs> What? It just means they've been on the platform for less than seven days. So it tells us um, to welcome them. So Cassie, welcome to Clubhouse. And yeah, thank you. Thanks, Ambika, for first. introducing us, both of us, to Clubhouse. Thank you very much. No, my question is, you know, is it something for the individuals? Or, you know, I do have, you know, my name is Kashi Burdi. I work with Ambika as well for, but I have my, you know, I founded one, one of the nonprofit organization. We have some money sitting in the organization. We're waiting for a project. Is that something you will be advising how to manage those funds as well? Or is it strictly for individuals? Oh, no. Uh, yeah, Daffy is, is for individuals. So it's really for money that people are putting aside for charity, for their own uses, etc. cetera. Uh, managing money for a nonprofit is a very important problem and not a trivial one, as it turns out. I remember back in the old days at Wealthfront, there were a number of nonprofits we let open up accounts at Wealthfront just to help out. And we tried to waive fees and make it very inexpensive for them. I think we actually managed at one point, we would manage up to a million dollars for free for nonprofits. I'm not sure if the company does that anymore, to be honest, but no, we, we, we don't do that. Okay. So Manisha, Thanks. over to you for your questions from the back channel. Great. Thank you. So Adam, the first one is coming from Cindy, who's in the audience and he's not able to talk right now, but she's asking about just from a product roadmap standpoint, or even right now, do you have some sort of contribution uh, from, from a community? I know there's a community concept in terms of, you know, what everyone's doing, but she, her question is about can multiple members, whether it's family, kids and adults, or a group can contribute to this uh, fund? So the short answer is we don't have that feature yet, but we're really excited about it. Yet being the operative word. <laughs> right. So actually, um, not to pre-announce things, but you'll see some tweets in a blog post for me tomorrow. Chelsea's not on this, right? <laughs> She's not going to get angry at me. Okay, everyone, everyone, if, if you see Chelsea, tell her to do earmuffs so she doesn't know. But, but no, so tomorrow we're going to announce the first move in this direction, which is just opening up household accounts. We, we have a vision for this, which is a little bit different, where we want to make sure that individuals have their own identities on Daffy. And so 
even couples, right? Even spouses, uh, partners have different causes and charities they support. And so we, we're actually launching tomorrow what we're calling family accounts, but for the first time means that you and your partner can each have a DAFI account, contribute money from your own bank accounts or your own financial assets into a common fund together, but still have your own identity around what charities and causes you support. And so that took us a little bit of time to do, but we just, we're rolling that out tomorrow. Um, so very excited about that. We love the idea of, of people getting together to give. We love the idea of people inspiring each other to give, and we fully intend for Daffy to be a very community-oriented and social platform. And so basically, let's just say I, I like this feature idea. I think it's a great one. I think so, too. We can't wait to hear more about it. Maybe Could I just can... ask one question, Manisha? Yeah, ask? absolutely. Um, so how does that work? This this family or a household account that, as you mentioned, could I connect, let's say two different bank accounts, Chase and Wells, for example, and then it's one DAF, one donor account fund, but then the contributions could be made to multiple charities. Could you, sorry, talk a little bit more there? Oh yeah, for sure. And actually that's a feature for all, for all DAFI accounts, for all DAFI funds. You can give to as many charities as you want to. You know, some people give to dozens. Some people like to spread they're giving around and support a large number of organizations. Some people prefer smaller, a smaller number of organizations with larger gifts, but we support any number. But yes, that's right. For the family account, you and your partner each have your own Daffy account. You can each have your own bank account linked. If you want to, if you want to put in a few hundred dollars a month from your account and your partner wants to put in a few hundred dollars a month from their account, it all goes into the same fund though. So you, you pick the portfolio that it's invested in but you each have your own account on the app and can each make donation recommendations to whatever charities you support. I love it. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this tomorrow. Yeah, actually, I'm, what I'm hoping they'll do, believe it or not, is I'm hoping it'll get partners to actually talk a bit more about giving with you. You might be surprised, but money topics are funny. It's not always, it's not always clear how much partners talk about money in general. But giving also is one of those areas where I think it's a wonderful thing for partners to do together. But you have to admit that sometimes it's it's separate. Some people have different passions, right? You know, I think, you know, it's not uncommon for, you know, one partner to be very passionate about, you know, for example, food insecurity and social justice and have the other partner very passionate um, about the environment. And that's OK. Right. But there's something wonderful, I think, about doing these things together. And so we. Hopefully this will be a novel product and it won't just feel like a typical joint account at a financial services firm. Great, thank you, Adam. We do have Yulin on stage, uh, Yulin Lee. And please introduce yourself and can you ask a question? Yeah, thanks so much. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, yeah, so my question is a follow-up to what you just said uh, for the joint account. It sounds really exciting. So my question is, in addition to uh, couples, will it be able to also be able to include kids in the family? And the reason I'm asking for that is because I'm a financial coach. So in addition to coaching women about money, I also do financial literacy classes for kids, uh, teenagers, as well as you know teaching parents about how to teach money to kids. And so, you know, doing charity uh, is part of that conversation, is part of the, you know, teaching them how to budget, and that's one of the bucket items. And so, so far in that aspect, 
it's pretty much just stashing your cash, you know, helping the kids stash the cash away somewhere. And then at some point you mail a check. So I think it will be really exciting to also be able to include kids account uh, as part of this whole family affair. So just wanted to see if that's a, a possibility. Is that something that's, that will be there uh, with the new release or maybe something in the future? Thank you. Uh, you're all making a very compelling case for this feature, which is giving me great delight because I love this idea. I really love this idea for a whole host of reasons. I love this idea also because I don't, I, I love the idea of teaching kids all the different elements of being responsible. And like I said, there are so many real world, non-technical applications, even piggy banks that ask children to put money aside and separate money to spend from money to save, from money to give. So. Once again, the short answer is the feature we're launching tomorrow does not do that. But we love this idea, and I, I guarantee you there will be a feature in the future that, that does do this. Okay, yeah, thank you so much. And like you said, like I in my work, uh, this whole concept of having more money conversation as a family is, is a big one. So, And if you ever need a um, steady case or a user feedback, I'm happy to help. Thank you. Okay. You said you had a question. Oh yeah. Sorry. I thought you had more. Yes, I have one. It's from Bryce. He works at MX, uh, a fintech company in Salt Lake, and he would like to understand how you are managing developer experience. And I think it's because they're trying to also do the same. So I don't have more context besides, could you ask him about how he's navigating developer experience? Developer experience. Well, I, I have to be honest, this is one where Unfortunately, you've got the wrong co-founder here to probably do the best, the best job. You know, starting my career in engineering, you know, and, and being in a long-term product role, I don't think it's any surprise that I'm a believer that a lot of what you do when you build a startup, when you build a company, is you're, you're building the machine that, that builds the machine, right? Like, you're, you know, companies are actually about people more than, than technology or anything, but software is hard and, you know, investments you make in how you, you build software, how you, you write code, how you develop code, how you deploy code, how you monitor, et cetera, it has a lot to do with, with how you scale down the road. And I've seen this with startups in my portfolio. I've seen it with companies, you know, in my own history. I, you know, the, sometimes you have to do things that don't scale in the beginning, and I'm a big fan of that sometimes. But when it comes to the developer experience for your internal developers, I don't think you can take shortcuts. I, I think that actually a lot of that tends to come from the founder. A lot of that comes from the early team. And some of it just comes from leadership in terms of how highly you prioritize that as a problem. You know, I, I'm fortunate, my co-founder, when I told you Alejandro was one of my favorite engineers at LinkedIn to work with, I didn't tell you why. And I don't want to embarrass him, but I don't know if he's here. I, I don't want to embarrass him too much, but it's really because Alejandro has this rare combination. I will tell you, as, as, as an engineer on the technical side, not just brilliant and amazingly productive, but his elegant passion for always looking for better ways for people to work together to build and maintain and deploy excellent software is just something you can't teach in, in some regards. People learn it by doing it. They learn it from experience or they just they just intrinsically want to build better systems. And, and he's amazing technically. Of course, another reason I love him is that his, his, his attention to detail on the quality front, you know, his passion for making the user experience and the product better 
is never about the requirements. It's never about what a product manager said or what a designer did. It's always driven from how to make that experience better for the user, and it's never done. It could always be better. And that's what iteration is all about, right? But it could always be better, and, and it's always worth doing. So, I mean, in terms of developer experience, I don't, we don't have a developer platform yet, so I'm not sure how we would go in that direction. But I will tell you that one of the things I think in fintech that gets overlooked, I've seen fintech startups that are very thin on technology and fintech startups that take their software very seriously. And I will tell you, the quality of your software and development experience has a lot to do with some of your competitive advantage long-term versus incumbents, right? You know, I remember once going to a, a dinner with Jamie Dimon and a number of other fintech leaders talking about, you know, what young people want. He talked a lot about the branch experience, believe it or not, at Chase. Obviously, I was a little skeptical about that being the differentiator. But I, I will tell you that I, I, I told him my belief that going forward, financial service brands were increasingly going to be judged by the quality of their software user experience, right? When people use a financial site or service and the technology is not good, when the quality is not high, when the user experience is poorly designed, most people are starting to associate that with a team that either doesn't care or isn't capable of making it great. And neither of those are things that you want from the people handling your money. And so I will say that if you wanna have a great high quality user experience and a great platform and constantly innovate and roll out new features, that all starts in one place. And, that, and that's with the actual developer experience you provide internally, or at least that's what I believe. So Adam, you're the reason that Jamie Jam is spending 10 billion on technology this year. Oh, I doubt that. I, I, I'm not sure I made that big an impression on him. But I, I do think that, you know, and, and Jamie, by the way, is, is, is always an amazing one for, for I don't want to say talking his book, but like always voicing the mission, like what, whatever they're doing now. He's, a, he's a, an amazing leader that way. But I will say, I do think that, you know, going back to when I was in business school over 20 years ago, there's been a debate in the industry that goes back decades. Is software just a commodity? Can you just hire engineers and hire designers and, and be great? Or is there something more there? Is, is how you build software, can it be a competitive advantage? And I'm still in the camp that believes that software is not a commodity. That actually, it turns out that the way you build software, the culture of your team that you build around how you design software, it's not just process, it's not just code, but I, I'm still in the camp that we're still in a phase where technology and innovation is happening quickly enough that there is a differentiated advantage in software possible. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing in FinTech right now is that differentiated advantage. Turning that into an audiogram and sending that to all the um, top people I know in large banks because they don't see software as a differentiator. But... Oh, I know. I, I once <laughs> gave, a, I gave the same talk. I, I had a chance to give a guest talk to a offsite for the board of, of UBS and, um, it's that same talk, very consistent message. I will say, however, more people in leadership at the large banks across the globe have come to view that if, if someday software will be a commodity, it may take too long to be valuable competitively and they have to move faster and they have to move now. And so whether they're full true believers in the value of a software, you know, modern software culture and, and, and building software, I'm seeing more and more in leadership believe that they have to invest heavily and do something different if they want to have success in the market, especially with this new generation of investors.
Yes, here. I, yes, you're preaching the crowd here. Yeah. Last question. We are over time. So sorry. We want to be mindful of your time as well. Last question. If you were, I hope you are wildly successful with Daffy. When you are, what does the world look like? Your vision for the future? Oh, you can make my heart, you know, I, I can feel it here. It's like, I cannot tell you how wonderful it would be to see millions of people putting money aside regularly for those less fortunate than themselves. I think the impact of that community would be so much bigger than the dollars or the people involved. I, I think the inspiration from it would be phenomenal, but that's really, I mean, I know this is hard to imagine, but like when LinkedIn was young, <laughs> this idea that people who were not actively looking for a job would actually put up their resume online for some reason was really a hard sell. It was very hard for people to imagine that, no, 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 there should be a place online where people own their own reputation, their relationships, and they can talk about professional things, right? They can, they can talk about skills and careers and business, et cetera. And I just, right now, I don't feel like that space exists online for philanthropy, for giving. And I, I think it's a real problem because I think that, first of all, I think a lot of the motivation for giving is social. I, I think it is based on other people and the fact that we don't talk about money as much as we should, and we don't talk about giving as much as we should, means that a lot of people operate in the dark. I mean, I'll tell you, like, you know, when we rolled out Daffy, the very first day we had this feature where it showed you the average giving for a household in the city you're in. And it was fascinating to watch people's reaction to this because you realize that they don't even know. Like, we don't know. You, you don't really know even close friends, you don't know how much they give, who they give to, why they give. And so for me, putting this platform together, it's always hard to predict where these platforms will go. And so I don't want to have the hubris to say that I can see exactly what that product and that community looks like in 10 years. I mean, the truth is it's very hard to predict five years in advance in this industry, let alone 10. But I, I really get excited about this idea that 10 years from now, that there's this place where someone who, you know, brand new, might be coming out of school, et cetera, doing a new job, finds a site, joins it, and is just inspired, right? You know, doesn't have to do random web searches, sees organizations, can find organizations they're excited about, can learn from other people how they think about their giving, is inspired to give more, do more. I think that's just a wonderful thing. And I think it's something that's missing today. And so that, that motivation is a large part of what the entire team is trying to build at Daffy now is, is that space, a, a place that's dedicated to, to being generous, to, to giving. And perhaps we'll be more empathetic of a society. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, was, I, I didn't want to say anything cynical there, but yes, I, I, I think. You said you were yeah, optimistic, I, right, Adam? In I am inevitably. Well, so to be clear, I'm inevitably optimistic. I get always there. get there. <laughs> Longer um, it's, it's my natural state. Well, great. Thank you so much, Adam, that uh, you gave us your one hour, uh, well, more than one hour. Thank you for educating us about Daffy. And then thank you, Chelsea, for sharing the promo code. I personally will be downloading and checking this out. So thank you for creating, creating Daffy and for educating us about donor advice funds. 
Yeah, and please, um, everyone, I, I really appreciate anyone listening. Thank you, of course, for the great questions and, and giving us a chance. But yeah, please, it's still very early, just a few months in. Would love it if you try the product. Any feedback you send in is is its own blessing, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. And remember, of course, you know, as a limited time promotion here, you, you will get $25 to give to the charity of your choice. So for no other reason, playing with it, we if you have an organization that you love or that you mean to support, I'm sure they could use a little bit of extra money right now. Get closer to the 30% goal, right, Adam? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was fantastic. And you've left us with uh, some really big things to think about. Thanks, everyone, sure. for joining us. And we'll be back next week, same time. Until then, Adam, thanks so much for joining us. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you like the discussion, we welcome you to join us during our live shows every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on Clubhouse. We'd be delighted to have you there. You can also find other episodes on all major podcasting platforms, such as Spotify, Apple, Google, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate if you could leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next week, be safe. Thank you.